0: Welcome to the Good Reading Podcast, proudly sponsored by Book People Gift Cards. A Book People Gift Card is the perfect gift for readers of all ages. Simply order your gift card online at bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au. Redeem at any one of over 500 bookshops across Australia. Visit bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au. David Goodwin worked the weekend graveyard shift in service stations for several years. He's now no longer a day sleeper with a halogen tan, but still maintains a predilection for Slurpees and sausage rolls with too much tomato sauce. He's also a published poet, but today I'm talking to David Goodwin about his first book, Servo, Tales from the Graveyard Shift. David Goodwin, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you for having me. What brings one to the world of the Servo?
1: Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I was um, in uni, just started the second year of uh, a Bachelor of Arts, and um, I needed some money. I was living at home with my parents, who were kind of sick of me not having a job. So, I kind of wanted something fairly easy, something that I didn't really have to think too much, and uh, wouldn't clash with my uh, uni tutes and lectures. So. I was sort of looking through online job ads and I kept seeing this term that said console operator. And I was a bit uh, I was a bit interested because as a fan of The Simpsons, I I was thinking of Homer's role at the nuclear power plant. So I thought, I wonder what this is. There's a lot of them there. So I clicked and I called and I showed up to the interview and, yeah, it was working in a server. And, uh, you know, you've got your anti-jump protection wire strung up and you've got, you know, a locked and coded door, which with things I realised in the future that were definitely required. Uh, but, yeah, that's, that's definitely what it's called. You're sort of in a cockpit in some senses.
0: And you had to go through an interview process, but I'm curious to know what skills might be paramount in, in, well, staying sane. I think from the outset, most people would think it's
1: very simple. In some ways it is. But it's almost like you could say that, you know, you need to sort of have skills in psychology, uh, I would say risk management, crowd control, uh, public relations, you know, there's a lot going on. Obviously, you're taking people's money and you're helping them. You're scanning products. You're helping them, you know, uh, do all of the basic stuff. But um, because I worked at night, uh, there is a lot of craziness that goes on in servos. And pretty much I would say if I had to sum up the position in one word, it would be ringleader.
0: As in a circus?
1: Definitely, a mad,
0: dark circus. I've also got to ask how long your sentence was.
1: So I started uh, early 2003 and I quit in uh, June of 2009. Uh, But then I had about six months off to decompress in Europe. And uh, then for some stupid reason, I moved back to Australia. I had planned to go live in Europe, but um, I came back to Australia and needed a job and ended up doing another almost six years uh, at a different service station. Uh, which was a bigger one that was more of a sort of truck stop on the edge of a freeway so all up uh, god i don't want to think i think it was i read the other day malcolm gladwell said that true expertise comes from 10,000 hours of practice and i calculated the other day i think i've spent 15,000 hours behind the console so
0: yeah i've definitely done my time now of course the servo serves petrol and various other fuels but it's also a place where people go for food and i gather that Most people who buy food, there are in a certain condition where um, good judgment goes out the window.
1: Yes. I think as soon as you walk in those auto doors, it's kind of like what happens in the servo stays in the servo. So servos, to me, they've always had such a a unique place in Australian culture in that, you know, you think about the word itself and it's it's inextricably woven into our, um, what I call our beloved O suffixed vernacular. You know, you've got uh, the Avo, uh, Smoko, Renaults, uh, the Botello, and you know, going to fill up at the servo. So, it's just such an inextricable part of our lives. You know, there's probably one on every second corner. I think we've got something like 20 million registered cars on the road, so everyone has to fill up, and yeah, everyone will fill up, and they'll also come in and be pestered to buy, you know, two cherry ripes for five bucks, and. Yeah, they'll like, oh, I might just grab this and I might just grab that. So, yeah, I've often think it's, it's a little like a, I wouldn't call it a den of iniquity, but I would call it a palace of convenient temptation. Randall was a shriveled, gypsy-looking man in love with a sun that left no shadow. 45, but looking more like he was 60, his tobacco-stained hands were marbled with dark splotches, so the ends of his fingers actually looked leprous, ready to drop to the floor at any second. He was hopelessly addicted to cigarettes, which made him an addict too, I suppose, and his drug was legal and would take decades to kill him. Randall would spend hours talking nonsense at me, peering off into a far-off galaxy, always searching for his black holes. His ramblings were of wizards and auras in his supposed journeys to far corners of this globe and others. These stories never ran out. Every few nights, he returned with more. His rantings peppered with enough lucidity that after a few months, I was almost convinced that he was some kind of
0: shaman. Of course, it's about the characters that you meet in the graveyard shift. Randall, some kind of shaman? What kind of relationship did you build with Randall? I
1: came across Randall quite early. It was about I would say maybe two to three months into my job the day before I was talking to one of my colleagues, Ralph, and um, I asked him, I said, what is it with, you know, these, these weird people that never leave the store? You know, how do I deal with that? And he said, Oh, just say, can I help you with something? And that'll sort it right out. So Randall's difficult to explain in terms of his, have you ever seen the picture of Nick Nolte's mugshot? Anyway, Randall is pretty much a dead ringer for that exact mugshot. That's what Randall pretty much looks like. So he would just sort of float through the aisles and he would sort of say random things and then float a bit more and go walk somewhere else. So I walked up to him and asked if I could help him with something. And he turned around and he wasn't looking at me. He was looking through me. He was ethereal, I think is a word to describe him over the years. He would often come in and sort of read passages from the Bible. Not that he had one with him, but they were in his head, but he had this eloquence to him and he would say things that would sometimes floor me. And then he would disappear again for another 15 minutes. And I got to know him well over the years. And um, he was just emblematic of the kind of uh, people that you get at 3 a.m. From what I could gather, he essentially worshipped black holes as deities. That was kind of part of his, uh, I suppose you'd call it his cosmology. He was just such a fascinating creature, I almost want to say. He just did not seem all that human. But then that was a fairly common occurrence in that You know, quite a few people that I came across didn't particularly seem very human. Yeah, he was, uh, I'm glad I met him. He was an interesting character. Everyone has a story. And as I began to listen, I learned theirs. No one becomes a Gumbleton all at once. There were so many seemingly inconsequential twists of fate, dollops of unfairness and consecutive bad decisions in a person's life each of them tilting the axis it spun on just a smidgen more off-kilter until one day they wobbled too much and their orbit veered completely out of control, careening away from the nourishment of the sun through vast wastes of interstellar space to circle a now leering black hole. Something about that journey resonated deeply as I realised a Gumbleton could be anyone,
0: including me. Gumbletania and becoming a Gumbleton. What is it? Where is it? Where and to whom does it apply? Gumbleton is
1: a word that uh, comes from uh, my best mate, Steve-O, who is uh, quite prominent in the book. Steve-O is, like Randall, a very interesting character. Um, He's confoundingly huge, hairy, and covered in many large tattoos. Uh, Zany, outwardly menacing, but soft and empathetic plasterer with a highly developed skill set of smuggling alcohol about his bodily person uh he takes pride in free-balling renouncing underwear as restrictive and unnecessary Uh, so a gumbleton is a word that he's developed from his own language which is a mutant combo of uh what he calls stevo and english uh he's christened it stinglish so gumbleton is one of the prominent words from them so uh, according to stevo gumbleton is someone that is life hasn't been kind to them and they pretty much don't have much direction, but they're also incredibly unpredictable. You don't really know what they're going to do. So I would call them freaks, uh, which is maybe a slightly less kind version. And that was probably early on when I was quite overwhelmed with the whole thing. But yeah, once uh, once Steve-O taught me the word, it just seemed to fit. So Gumbletania, I suppose, was my servo. Is any place where Gumbletons congregate en masse? And generally,
0: this seems to happen a lot more at 3 a.m. There's something quite biblical about the way you tell the stories of your experience in the Servo. I was interested also in your interaction with Goliath, and that's the chapter headed David versus Goliath.
1: Yeah, Goliath was, like Steve-O, confoundingly huge, but uh, quite menacing. So this was my first shift in my home suburb. I'd done about a week of training in other places and uh, got some shifts in my home suburb, and I think it was around 4 a.m. from memory. And um, one of the things that the guy before me, Ralph, had shown me was make sure the door is locked, which uh, I'd completely forgotten. And this absolute beast of a human being uh, just burst in through the auto doors, blood trickling down his neck, and um, he was soaking wet. He was wearing these tiny little, like, stubby shorts. I'll never forget. And um, he was just an absolutely... Menacing beast. And um, he walked around the store and was sort of just randomly taking things and consuming them before he'd sort of even got up to me. And then he brought up this uh, porno magazine and he was leaping through it on the counter and he was just randomly saying things. And it took me a while to realize, but he must have been on speed because he was just randomly sort of saying these quick, short, sharp sentences and sort of finishing them before he'd even started another one. And um, I was just standing there trying not to breathe or make eye contact.
0: And your book suggests that uh, working at a servo is not an easy life, but you're obviously a great observer of people, especially of the public. But your colleagues in particular, and I was very interested in a fellow you mentioned a second ago, Ralph. Ralph was an enigma.
1: Like me, he was a Gemini, so he was definitely outgoing, but he was also incredibly committed to his job. He was very, very into every single element of the servo. He would light everything up like a Christmas tree, but he also had this element to him, which was slightly, uh, shall we say conniving and he would direct attention to, you know, the, the easy jobs that he would do, but then he would shovel all of the difficult stuff onto everyone else. But equally, I absolutely adored him. He was selfless and he would always help out. And in my first month and a half, he was, he was essentially my protector and he would sort of show me the ropes and, um, Keep me sort of shielded to an extent where I could slowly learn what the hell was going on. But um, there were others. I, I think my favorite was a woman named Nelly. Uh, she was, um, well, how to describe Nelly? She was kind hearted, but a very take no prisoners kind of woman from Serbia with, I would say, an unhealthy streak of masochism. She worked at the Servo from the day it opened. Uh, but because she was on this archaic and exploitive contract where she earned something like 10 bucks an hour, she also got a job at a local Mac security prison and she soon said to me, David, I work at the prison amongst the worst murderers and rapists and pedophiles. And you know what? I prefer it to the servo. It is so much more of a nicer working environment. So she helped toughen me up. She would often sort of tell me stories about her battles with customers. And as I slowly came to realize that, oh, wow, this is, this is kill or be killed, she um, made me realize that I had to stand up for myself.
0: I did wonder what the graveyard shift might do to your social life. What did your friends think of your sentence at the local servo and how did it affect your social life and, in fact, your love life?
1: I have always say to people that there's a reason why they call it the graveyard shift. You know, you start working nights and many things you know will begin to wither and die. Your, your health, uh, your sleeping patterns, often your appetite, And as you suggested, any semblance of a social life, you're sleeping during the day. And this is when people meet, when they work, when they congregate. And um, then you'll wake up and it's the afternoon and or the early evening. And sleeping during the day is loosely what I imagine maybe one of the slightly less severe circles of Dante's hell to be like, because there's noise and there's light and there's so many things going on. And you might get about three or four periods of, of stolen sleep, but It's never the same as, you know, restful nighttime sleep when your melatonin's high. So, yeah, you wake up and you often don't really know who you are. So, yeah, my sleeping patterns are obviously normal these days, but my God, it took them a long time to get there. You know, back then I was always sick. Uh, I had huge brain fog. I dropped out of uni and I ended up following, uh, let's say, the pimp's tune of some of my more crazy customers and mates into all kinds of uh, intoxicants. Quite
0: an interesting and diverse life and another aspect of your life of course is poetry you are a published poet in the graveyard shift does inspiration come before during or after uh during and after
1: the majority of servo was written on register receipt rolls essentially quite nervously most of the time scribbled in between customers so when you're working at night, most people take a long time to choose, you know, their, their drink or their uh, chocolate bar. So I'm sitting there just, you know, got a long snake of register receipt, roll paper, and I'm just scribbling and scribbling and scribbling. So I would finish that and then I would drive home and, and collapse. And then once I'd wake up, usually after about three or four coffees, my brain would start to work and I would sit there at the computer and I suppose try and piece them into some kind of intelligible narrative. And, you know, little by little by little, it it happened. But, yeah, sometimes poems would pop up. They were generally these kind of urban, often not drug-affected. I never really wrote on drugs. But there would just be things that would leap out at you when you look at all of the incredible customers that would just, you know, I was blessed in a sense because they would walk in through the auto doors and it was almost like they were on a stage and they had to perform. And maybe it was something about the halogen that would charge them up. But, yeah, I do. I really feel blessed that... You know, I was a captive audience sat there behind the the anti-jump protection wire going, wow, this is gold. You know, I've got to get this down. And uh, that's pretty much what happened. And that turned into a book. The currency you're
0: working with is time. Is there time to ponder life's
1: quandaries? Without question. I I think it was in around about sort of mid to late 2004, uh, not long, about a year after I'd started. I just got back from Europe and... um, my head was still in Europe and I, I just, I had trouble acclimating back into the night and all of the craziness. And um, I read a book, I read uh, The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle and something about it just rung in my head like this resounding bell. And all of a sudden I was able to just live completely in the present. So that made me start meditation. That really helped get me through the years. As I say, a servo is such a, a surreal, mad, dark circus that everybody needs something to get them through. For many of my colleagues, it was masochism in that I'm going to see how much of this I can take uh, in a stoic kind of sense before I lose my mind. Everybody had a different method, but yeah, mine definitely became spirituality.
0: Now, all retail employees are working at, we might call the coal face of humanity and working as a service station attendant seems a little closer than most. Do you have any regrets? And is there anything to recommend it?
1: Working in a servo is obviously a challenge and is quite surreal. I think retail in general uh, is an almost universal rite of passage, you know, for such a huge chunk of young people today. I think it's our second largest industry for memory. And I think also it's the first time to really uh, tasked with a sizable amount of both responsibility and often uh, the desire to inflict bodily harm on a large amount of people. So, I think, you know, you start out nervous and excited like this Labrador puppy, desperate to do all the right things. But I think as as the reality of the crappy wages and entitled customers and demanding managers hits home, I think you quickly become jaded and bitter about everything. But Servos specifically, I always called them the front line of retail. And it was like there was a trench and you were on one side and everybody else was on the other. Because there's something about Servos where people will act in a way that they will not act in a supermarket or a bank. There's something that is very different. I think it has to do with the transient nature of them. And as I said, I work primarily at night, so obviously that had an effect. But if you want to work in a server, give it a shot. You will learn a hell of a lot about yourself, but also you will learn a lot about humanity and it might give you something to write
0: about. Well, David, welcome back to the world of daylight away from the graveyard shift and thank you so much for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Thanks, Eves, Greg. I've been talking to David Goodwin about his new book, Servo, Tales from the Graveyard Shift. It's published by Hachette and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs and thanks for listening. This Good Reading Podcast was brought to you by Book People Gift Cards. Share the joy of reading with a Book People Gift Card. To find out more, visit bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au.